Thank you very much. Afternoon from Dale Kennick in the UK. Good Lord, that's the first time we've had that in our chat window, I believe. But um, yeah, so Fred and I were just talking about, you know, Carl Carlson, possibly the Ford's uh, leading, the foremost expert. Um, oh, we've got someone from the Netherlands as well. Cool. Some the world's most leading expert on, on Vermeer as well, his colleague of ours, friend of ours. Uh, we do lots of podcasts together. But, um, and he can, uh, uh, Carl can take you through there's as many differences between design and processes for me as, as as much as anybody in the world. But what I want to talk today about is that what is the more or less philosophical difference between design and process for me is, of course, people who have been involved with me in the past will know about um uh, will, will know all about uh, for me worksheets and uh, scales and severities and things like that. But what is it that is the fundamentally um, what fundamentally differentiates one from the other? So, what I'm going to start with is for those of you who are familiar with my work, you'll recognize my good old smart lock. And the reason why I'm talking about the smart lock is because I want to talk about what a design for me is supposed to do. So, a smart lock like this, which we designed from scratch, we know is going to have roughly 16 or 17 different components before we even think about designing it. And because we know this, we should be able to do a really robust uh, Femia, and hopefully that Femia, or design Femia, I should say, and that design Femia would, for example, look at the design as it applies to for uh, things like uh, door slams. The door that this lock is, is attached to is slammed shut um, due to wind or arguments or children, what have you. The idea of a design Femia is to, as early as possible, come up with wonderfully simple I call them fast, simple, free uh, corrective actions like this one where we use thicker gauge wire to provide more contact area with the motor terminal. We use uh, shorter wire to accumulate less momentum when the door is being slammed. We include uh, wire clips to physically secure the wire. And in the top, we have now have socket and plugs instead of solder joints in the circuit board, which also makes it much easier to assemble. Now, these corrective actions, I hope you'll agree, are fast, simple, and free. And when I say free, of course, they're not entirely free. There is some cost associated with thicker gauge wires and the rest. But in practice, when you compare this to the overall um, recommended retail price or cost to put this thing together, these are negligibly cheap changes to the design itself. And of course, uh, these changes might solve all sorts of uh, crises and fires that you would otherwise have to deal with during production if you thought of them early. So design for me is all about making reliability happen through design changes. Uh, we do we implement really early in our design process. And so the outputs of design for me is no matter what anybody else tells you is a list of prioritized corrective actions. Some people do for me is just to analyze the risk, which is to identify the most likely way your thing is going to fail and then stops right there. And that's what we call admiring a problem and not fixing it. Every single document that pretends to be a standard or a textbook or a guidebook as it pertains to a FAMIA, they all talk about how everything revolves around corrective actions. We're not here to admire a problem. We're here to fix problems. And so we want these really fast, simple, free corrective actions embedded in our design at the very, very start. 
So that starts our conversation on what a design for Mia is. And of course, there's more than just design and design and process for Mia's. And we'll get into that right now, starting with the sort of quintessential or baseline or basic uh, life cycle or development life cycle or, or whatever you want to call the way your organization comes up with a great idea for something and then starts to work, works out how to make it and then send it or sell it, I should say, to customers. Now, you can see here on this very basic list of steps, you, we have an idea followed by a concept, which we try and flesh out that idea. Specifications where we turn that concept into measurable things that designers and technicians and engineers and manufacturers can use to uh, work at what they need to come up with. Then we have the design phase where we actually work at, we put these things together. And of course, the design and the build phases are iterative. We're going to go back and forth uh, as we go through different ideas. And after that, we're going to sustain our thing and we're going to dispose of it one way or another. And disposal for a commercial product might not involve any sort of actual accumulation of waste products. But a lot of organizations tend to overlook that by the end of the life cycle of a commercial product, we have a lot of really useful information for whatever it is we're going to do next. So the dispose phase, no matter what you do or you think you do, is very important to make sure, if nothing else, you learn as many lessons as possible. Now, some of us might have heard of a system for Mia. Now, a system for Mia is a for Mia which is conducted on 100% of the system or the product that it is you're looking at. Uh, as a rule, most things which are, have even a baseline level of complexity, um, we think about machines here, for example, will have or should be, uh, should be considered for a system for Mia, where the FAMIA itself, the failure modes and effect analysis focuses on the highest level analysis with a focus on system issues. I said focused a few times there. But the idea is that a system for Mia involves a bunch of people sitting down saying, well, what can go wrong at the system level? And that question, that sort of baseline rhetorical question we're trying to answer includes things like the customer or user experience, which of course includes a human machine interface, it importantly involves describing failure severity, which includes things like safety. So the system for me is really good at having all the people in the room come up with a really useful way of describing what bad and then even worse failures look like. Now, because we're looking at a system from uh, system level, the system for me itself deals with interfaces between components and other systems in a nice little uh, number we like floating around in the reliability engineering world is that about 50% of all failures occur interfaces. So one of the really easiest and fastest and cheapest ways to improve reliability is to focus on interfaces. A lot of the corrective actions for interface issues are negligibly trivial. And so you can really improve reliability greatly by looking at interfaces. Of course, you can always also ruin reliability by not looking at interfaces. A lot of organizations spend a lot of time and money looking at the components and nothing else. And all of a sudden, their final system or product doesn't work because one component does not interface well with another one. It's not much you can do about it when you've uh, released product into the wild. 
And of course, if you're dealing with sort of complex systems, you might have maintenance and support strategies that a system for me is really good at starting to come to terms with really early. There's more than that. System for me is a great at making sure we haven't missed any requirements or specifications. And beyond that, a system for me is there to prioritize effort and focus on the vital few. So you can see that a system for me gets done before we start designing. Uh, once you started designing, the system for me becomes less and less um, uh, feasible. The idea is the system for me prioritizes effort and focuses your reliability uh, oxygen, so to speak, on the vital few weak points of your system. So that's the system for Mia. The design for Mia is conducted on some of the things that your system for Mia has identified as being problematic. So the things that are going to keep your team up at night when it comes to reliability, they're the ones that get subjected to uh, design for Mia's. So we conduct design for Mia's on the high risk or vital few elements of the system that are going to potentially ruin your day. And you might find that there's three or four components of your overall system, which are perhaps based on new or emerging technology or from a vendor you've never used before or being used in a brand new application. And so for whatever reason, your system for me has said, these three components are the three components that we worry about the most. And so we're going to do design for me is on those vital few parts of our system that represent the high risk elements of said system. And we obviously we do that at the very start of design. Now, a lot of people I tell this to, the first response is, oh, well, what about the reliability of all the other stuff? Do we just not worry about it? And the answer is, of course, we make sure reliability is baked into all the other components. It's just that the system for me decided that they represent such a lower, their risk of causing or being responsible for all the failures that this system is going to experience is that much lower than the high risk elements. All we need to do is just use good engineering judgment and good reliability engineering tools as a, that don't need to be uh, discerned from or identified as part of a potentially rigorous design for me process. And so the design for me gets done on the components that are going to keep you up at night or the subsystem with a focus on product design related issues. This is the uh, medium in which we will identify those fast, simple, and usually free corrective actions to embed into the design. When I say free, of course, having thicker gauge wire is not technically free, but in terms of the overall concept or overall um, cost of making your thing, thing like a smart lock, they are negligibly cheap. Um, it should be costs that you would happily spend if you know that's going to make a more robust product in the end. And so the idea is that once we have these corrective actions, which include, for example, design changes, they can also include uh, DFR tools. So for example, if, if your design for Mia identifies that a PCB is something you are concerned about when it comes to reliability, you might, as a corrective action in your design for Mia, recommend that we conduct halt or sneak circuit analysis or whatever it is on that component which is keeping you up at night. Design for Mia aren't going to always be able to uh, bring a team together with predetermined answers for everything. 
So an entirely useful corrective action is to subject specific parts of your system to ongoing or future DFR activities like HALT, highly accelerated life testing. And for those who've never heard of HALT before, there's plenty of articles and podcasts and webinars on Ascendo reliability that uh, deal with HALT. But for if you've never heard of HALT before, it's just a test regime, especially essentially where you try to, in a scientific and controlled way, push parts of your system towards and then beyond their limits in order to find their weak points. And the idea, if you do this rapidly, those weak points can then very quickly be designed out of your system. And all of a sudden, you now have a PCB or printable circuit board, which is robust and not going to fall apart when that door is slammed uh, multiple times. And so corrective actions can find those DFR tools. They can ideally, if, you, uh, if, if you've never done any of this before, be embedded into your reliability plan. And so you have a strategy throughout the design process that Design for Mir can inform, which takes away much of the overwhelm. And again, we're only focusing on the vital few. If everything is important, then nothing is important. Then, of course, Design for Mir's can be very useful for helping us develop system and component test plans. One of the many things we do when we design stuff is we um, simply, uh, or we forget about testing until it's sort of done, uh, until we have to put together that document at the end of the production process. And then a lot of the times, organizations just look at each other with dumb faces, dumb looks on their faces, where they go, "All right, well, what does the standard say? We need to we need to test for." And then we have a bunch of very potentially very expensive testing, which doesn't address the vital few weak points of your system. So once you know the, the vital few weak points of your system, you can then con uh, complete as part of your corrective actions or, uh, or schedule tests that focus on those vital few weak points because the design for me is all about the vital few dominant failure mechanisms. Once you have that, and once you're comfortable that the, the vital few dominant failure mechanisms mechanisms on your list represent your system, then reliability decision-making becomes so much less stressful. When you want to model reliability, you only need to model those vital few failure mechanisms. You can then use things like accelerated life testing, which sounds like HALT, but it's not. That's where, for example, if you realize that your component or system is going to fail by fatigue one day. That's the dominant failure mechanism. And there will always be a dominant failure mechanism. You cannot uh, design failure out of your system. It's going to fail one day. But if you know that if when it does fail, it will be due to fatigue, then you can, can, can conduct accelerated life testing where perhaps you increase the stress or cycles to uh, recreate 10 years worth of use into one week and get a really useful estimate on how long that thing will last. And that's what confidence looks like. We don't want to have to rely on test-to-failure statistics. That means we need to do a lot of testing to failure. And there's so many uh, unknowns in how we test when we don't know what we're testing for, that often those tests don't represent how our thing is going to be used. So long story short, design for me is their main focus is on improving the design. So the reason why they get done at the first start of the design process is because 
they have to influence the design process itself. Now, when it comes to design for mayors, one of the most common mistakes I see is we try to, uh, organizations often try to complete design for mayors on everything. Doesn't work like that because design for mayors are quite uh, intensive processes, they're intensive activities. And if you don't listen to your system for me, essentially a system for me, which identifies all the trivial thousands of ways you'll think and fail as well, then you're doing design for me as on absolutely every part of your product. Then what you tend to do very quickly is exhaust your designers and your technicians and your manufacturers. And when they become exhausted from doing design for me after design for me, they tend to go into robot mode where they just try to come up with corrective actions after corrective action, which might not be based on good judgment. They just need to say they've done one more for Mia before they go home that Friday. You don't want that. You want high quality for Mia's, designed for Mia's, I should say, done on the vital few. You want to only use engineering judgment for low-risk elements of your system. Otherwise, you trivialize the FAMIA and everyone becomes exhausted by the process. And because of that, the FAMIA doesn't make the design better. So FAMIAs, where they are required to be done on every part of your product, often look like this, where you have one person furiously writing down all the stuff and everybody else is distracted, answering emails, tired, course on their phones we don't want that if you make your design if you make your team do design for meals and everything good luck okay so this system for Mia is there to identify the vital few parts of your system or products that need to be subjected to design for Mia's. now some of us might have heard of a software for Mia. philosophically a software for Mia is identical to a design for Mia in that it also focuses on subsystem or component levels, but instead with a focus on product coding related issues. So they're philosophically identical, but structurally and practically very different because uh, when we look at uh, root causes of failure in the software world, technically every single one of them is a coding error that a software engineer made or didn't think that they needed to cover when they put those ones and zeros together at the very start. So the output of a software for Mia is high quality code. Perhaps where the software needs to, it involves fault tolerant software where the software is inherently designed to incorporate and anticipate, uh, sorry, incorporate things that are going to respond to uh, flaws in the code as they become apparent. So for example, um, you might've heard of what we call N aversion uh, programming. That means that we have perhaps three different programs designed and coded by different teams to do the same thing. Perhaps we, it's very important to multiply numbers together with a high degree of precision. And we might get three different design uh, software engineering teams to come up with three different approaches. The reason being is that if there is a mistake in one, it's highly unlikely to be repeated in both the other programs. And so if two programs give the same output and one program is different, 
we can say at the high degree of confidence that the one program which gives the different output has a bug in it that's very specific to those inputs. And so we disregard that one and use the outputs from the two programs that agree with each other. And of course, you don't have to do that for everything, but for software where it's very critical that you get the right number, that could be a very useful approach. And the other thing we want when we code software is to make that code easy to fault find and debug. Any one of us who've been involved in uh, uh, writing code, whether it be for uh, for a product or maybe it's MATLAB or R or Python or what have you, we've all seen those coders out there where they just write equation after equation after equation without explaining what each variable means and what the equation is trying to do. And if they step away from their program for two or three months and come back to this monstrosity of a code, they will have quickly forgotten what those equations mean and they have to try and re reverse engineer and work out what they are trying to do if they're trying to fault find and debug. And of course, that's 10 times worth worse if somebody else is coming in to try and improve the code. So the outcome of software for me is, is to improve the code of the elements of a system which are software. So let's just for this conversation have a software Vermeer considered to be philosophically identical to a design Vermeer and we only do software Vermeers on parts of our system that a system Vermeer is identified as high risk. But sometimes our item is really, really small or simple. It doesn't have tons of com components or subsystems. It might be a very simple product that's going to be sold through Amazon or through some other marketplace. It doesn't have a lot of different working, moving uh, different, a lot of different moving parts. It might not be as complicated as our smart lock. So that means that we might not have a ton of high risk elements, or perhaps our staff have done this sort of design very, very uh, a, a lot. They're very skilled. They know what they're doing. Perhaps our thing is not developmental. It's just evolutionary. We're not trying to invent uh, something brand new. Then, it's, then it is okay in scenarios where for whatever reason you think we don't have to spend quite as much time and money on a familiar to combine them into one activity. The system and design familiar is done at the same time. It's still a valid familiar. It's still something that can be very, very useful. But for whatever reason, it just this is going to be an approach that some organizations use when they have simple items. It's not high risk their staff is experienced or it's not developmental tool, de developmental, or it's a com combination of all of the above. I can't tell you when it is and is not appropriate based on a very, uh, for every single scenario. The idea is that if it is simple enough, you might combine them all, the system and design for Mia's into the same activity. System for Mia, so that this for Mia will involve the system considerations at the start, and the, light, light, the uh, end of that activity will involve the same team once they've come back from lunch uh, going through design and software considerations. So that is how the system and design for me is interact. You have a system for me identifying the vital few parts of your system that need to be subjected to design and software for me. So before I move on, are there any questions about the system and design for me is at all as I've covered them today?
Cool, cool. Now, before we move on and talk about process for me, is I need to talk about this thing called the criticality analysis. Now, there is a lot of wasted oxygen out there in terms of debates between different so-called experts on what is a familiar failure mode effect analysis versus a failure mode effect and criticality analysis or FAMICA. Now, criticality analysis, what is a criticality analysis? Well, here's something that not a lot of people really uh, acknowledge is that the criticality, anal criticality analysis has no genuine definition in the world of standards and uh, textbooks in the world of FAMIAs. Uh, criticality analysis, for those of you who have heard of it, is simply one way of prioritizing uh, the risk of each uh, of diff different failures. The problem with that definition, though, and that's essentially a defendable definition in the world of FAMIAs, is that in practice, especially in the world of defense and governmental customers, um, criticality analysis tends to be associated with an analysis of every single possible way your thing can fail trivial thousands and so criticality analysis in practice is an analysis done on every part every part of your system problem with that is that you cannot do it at the start of your design and build uh, phases of your developmental life cycle because you haven't designed or built your system so how do you know with absolute certainty how your thing is going to fail how do you know you've covered all the failure mechanisms and failure modes reality is you can't so in practice what needs to happen and there's no way around it is that criticality analysis needs to be uh done separate to the FAMIA as i've described it system and design for me as i've described it where we accumulate understanding of failure modes and mechanisms during design and build we essentially add them to the list and supplement our design for me outputs and eventually at the end of our design and build we have worked out every possible way our thing can fail and we've analyzed it to an extent, assigned a failure rate with it, and that then becomes or is fed into what we call the criticality analysis for the entire system. Now, every failure mode has to be ranked using a combination of severity and other risk factors like likelihood. One of the problems with this is that you can only understand that once you've completed your design and when i say that that's not even that's not entirely true there will be more failure modes and mechanisms that your customers and users will identify that you didn't know about every single time and when we do a criticality analysis using the industry standard approach so to speak we associate a failure rate based on every single one of these failure mechanisms and so if criticality analyses can be useful when we're trying to predict the effects of fire. They're really useful when you're trying to put together a maintenance strategy or work out how many spare parts you need or essentially design your logistics uh, network or uh, logistics capability. But what criticality analyses are terrible for, terrible at, I should say, is improving your design. And so I've never seen an organization where they've tried to uh, do a criticality analysis early have a good outcome so we have system for mirrors design and software for mirrors and criticality analysis analyses and like i was alluding to just then one of the biggest mistakes organizations who do for and conduct criticality analyses do 
is to try to complete the criticality analysis as part of a design for Mia. So all of a sudden, we have a system designed for Mia and a criticality analysis where the organization desperately wants to get it all done and all get it done in one hit. And that means that the, before we start designing, you have to have a failure rate estimate for every single failure mode and mechanism for something you haven't designed yet, which is borderline, not borderline, which is fundamentally impossible. So for makers often turn into useless activities where we have massive spreadsheets full of a list of uh, predicted or synthesized failure modes and mechanisms and have failure rates associated with them. And because so much effort is tr is put into trying to create this spreadsheet of uh, of um, uh, of failure rates, we lose sight of what we're trying to achieve and we don't get any good corrective actions. And many of the, uh, uh, and when we do the Formica, when we're forcing ourselves to come up with failure rates, then we look at all sorts of information sources to try and defend our estimates, ranging from parts, uh, parts count predictions through to OEM specifications and the like. But in practice, all these numbers are for somebody else's system and not the one you're going to design, not the one that you're going to come up with corrective actions for or otherwise make amazing and awesome. So uh, the Formica report itself then becomes just simply a table of failure rates and you forget to do, do all the other stuff because you're forced to try and come up with this uh, farcical doc document early and reliability stuffers. We, we, we don't update it during design because so much effort was put in. Of course, we always miss unanticipated failure mechanisms because it was done very early. There's no prioritizing the vital few, excuse me. Oh, excuse me. Um, so it's generally a bad outcome when we are forced to do a Formica very early. It just doesn't work. We go back to this scenario here. Okay, so that's the, the uh, system for Mia, the designer software for Mia and then the criticality analysis as uh, as nominally design-centric activities. But of course, all this is for nothing if you don't manufacture high-quality components. And so the manufacturing piece is where the process for Mia comes into play. Process for Mia, the process refers to the manufacturing process, but... We've seen the process for me applied to all sorts of processes, including things like healthcare, um, also uh, bureaucratic organization or very bureaucratic processes have been subjected to process for me as very successfully as well. But the overwhelming majority of subjects for which process for me is are mandated are manufacturing processes. And so a process for me in the world of reliability and quality focuses on manufacturing and assembly process analysis, focusing on manufacturing-related deficiencies. Now, we often look at a product having failed when it ceases to provide a function. So if we have a smart lock that can no longer lock or unlock, it has failed because that function has gone. A process for Mia for a smart lock actually isn't focusing on the smart lock itself. It's focusing on the machines and the people on the manufacturing line, line that work together to create the components that uh, get put into the smart lock. And so when it comes to a process for Mia, failure occurs when 
a component is not what it's supposed to be. What is a component supposed to be? Well, the design for Mia is really good at helping us work out what the manufacturing specifications need to be for high uh, criticality components or, or important components. And so those manufacturing specifications tell us when our manufacturing process has failed. If, for example, we are manufacturing a steel ball for a ball bearing, then a design for me, I might identify the limits on the diameter of that steel, belt, steel ball. And so if a process creates a steel ball outside of those limits, then our process has failed. So process for me is failure is the uh, pro producing a defective component, design system software for me is in criticality analyses. Failure is all about the uh, the event where that product, where those components are put together within, uh, fails in the hands of our user or customer. So a process for me is very important for making reliable things. There's no point designing something which is amazing and reliable if the manufacturing process comes up with uh, defective components, which will cause failure very quickly. So they're very, they're all, the end goal is very, very similar, but process for me is a philosophically different where the focus is a process and not the product. Of course, a product is there to inform the process and a process for me will help you get high quality production going on. Process for me is also really, really good at helping you get to high volume manufacturing very quickly. Process for me is aren't just about failure in terms of um, creating defective components. Process for me is all about failure in terms of the process itself stop stopping or being otherwise offline. So process for me is a great at minimizing downtime, minimizing scrap and rework, and getting those high quality parts uh, out there uh, in a reliable product you might have heard of statistical process control and process capability analysis. If there's something that you're interested in learning about, again, Ascendo's got a ton of resources, articles, podcasts, webinars about the both of them that allow you to uh, take your manufacturing to the next level. Essentially, statistical process control is all about monitoring uh, statistics of specific characteristics, such as the diameter, of those steel balls. And what you're trying to do is identify trends, which might just simply be the precursors or warnings about your machines heading off in their own direction. Reality is every manufacturing machine starts heading off in its own direction as soon as it starts to be used because it gets older, it wears out, or, um, uh, or otherwise things change. And so statistical process control is all about giving us as much early warning about things starting to go awry so we can do things about that before we start creating defective components. Process capability analysis is all about measuring the extent to which a, a process will manufacture defective components. There's always going to be a finite chance that some components are defective and process capability analysis is really good at working out what that number is. But you can only ever do PCA on a process which is what we call in control, where the machines are not wandering off doing their own thing. So you use statistical process control to make sure your machines are in control and not wandering off. And once you have confirmed that your machines are under control, 
then you can use process capability analysis to work out how many components you can expect to be defective. And really good um, uh, processes have defective rates in the order of parts per million. So the process for Mia is different to the design for Mia in that the focus is improving the manufacturing process. And that's fundamentally what I'm going to talk about today, already have talked about today. Of course, for those of you who have done FAMIAs before, you know that there is there are things like worksheets and things like that. I'm not going to get into the details. I'm going to simply focus on a high-level difference between the between uh, design and process FAMIAs and then talk about what that is, what that means moving forward. I can see that Carl has put in a um, uh, put in a definition of design for Mears or what they're supposed to do. And I agree with you uh, to an extent, Carl, that they are there to prevent unnecessary product development issues. But that's not the only role of a design for Mears. It's obviously there to implement design changes. It's there to make sure that we design something usable. Um, so one of the many things that design for me can do is in Carl's uh, comment and question, but uh, if uh, there's so many more things that design for me do than just that. Okay, so a process for me focuses on a process. And what is a process? Process is a set of interrelated, interrelated work activities that transforms inputs into outputs in a manufacturing process is one of those processes processes that uh, transforms raw materials or components into products. And high quality manufacturing means we limit how far important characteristics are spread out. Now, I'm going to introduce a uh, trusty friend or a trusty uh, food uh, food type bread to those of you who have uh, who have joined me for the first time. I often use a loaf of bread in my webinars and courses to talk about things that pertain to processes because a loaf of bread is very universally understood or baked products are very universally understood. We've all had bread before. We've all had cake or things that are that are based on wheat and yeast and, and uh, essentially fermented and then ultimately finished in an oven. But when it comes to these sorts of things, loaves of breads and cakes and the rest, there are lots of different things that help us identify whether something is high quality. The mass, the airiness, the amount of sponginess or the crust color, the number of slices of a loaf of bread, um, the thickness of the thinnest slice. We all hate getting a loaf of bread from a, from a store where we have a, a little slice at the end, which is a four nanometer stick. It's practically useless. It, uh, I know, know it annoys me. It probably annoys you guys as well. Perhaps the difference between the thinnest, biggest and smallest slice is a big deal, especially if you're a parent who makes lunches for your children and you want to have each piece slice of bread roughly the same slice, same size to make sure you have some consistency with the amount of food um, that you uh, provide your children at school. But of course, the process, the baking process involves things like cost per loaf, scrap, defects, destructive, destructive testing. To test bread, we often have to test it in a destructive way. We get a randomly selected loaf and subject it to different things. And that means that loaf of bread can never be sold to a customer. 
Of course, we want our process to be efficient. We want it to be fast, have lots of uh, lives per, per hour. We want it to have a small carbon footprint, we want to minimize environmental waste. All these different things are things that a good process for me can address. Now, many processes are represented with things like flow diagrams. And the flow diagram for this loaf of bread looks like this. Now you can see here, we have a diagram with lots of different shapes. I also want to highlight these different shapes represent different things. So you can see that things which are essentially mechanical are represented by a rectangle. Things which involve human, um, human, uh, more human steps uh, represented with uh, trapezoids. One of the first mistakes many organizations make is to forget about the humans in their flow diagram. Trouble with that is that humans are often the root cause of many process issues. So you really need to have your process well-defined and well-understood when it comes to a process for Mia. Now, process for Mia will look at each one of these little shapes and then uh, subject them to a, an organized discussion to work out what might go wrong and try and come up with ways of preventing that thing from happening. And so that this whole process and all the differences and all the randomness and all the different things that are going to combine essentially will be embedded in this random hand of manufacturing per se. Let's just call this the random hand of bread making where this hand represents all those little changes from loaf to loaf to loaf that we can, some of which we can never truly get out or eliminate or eradicate, that means that different bread will have different characteristics. And so if we focus on this characteristic we call chewability, we might create a hundred loaves of bread and each one of these loaves of bread will have a different uh, chewability characteristic. And yes, chewability is a, a, uh, a characteristic of baked goods. And you can see we have this bell curve behind these data points sort of characterize the outputs of this manufacturing process. But of course, how do we know if our product has failed, our process has failed or not? It has failed whenever we produce a loaf of bread where the chewability is too low or too high. And so one of the many steps that's responsible for the chewability of bread is this machine here. Well, this is a machine, not a step, but the step this machine represents I want us all to focus on this machine and then think about it, think about how it might affect the quality of our bread. Now, what this machine does is it takes a dough ball, which has already been mixed and rolled into a ball. That ball goes into the bottom of the machine, then goes along a conveyor and it comes out the top, the top right hand corner of this machine, as you can see it. And so that dough ball, which combines yeast carbohydrates water and it took some time and, and temperature to get there and once it's once it's in our in our intermediate what we call the intermediate proofer the idea is that this intermediate proofer is there to add temperature over time to promote fermentation now fermentation is essentially where the yeast the organisms within our dough ball start having a party and they take sugars and carbohydrates. And one of their outputs or one of their byproducts, I should say, is gas bubbles, CO2 bubbles. And those CO2 bubbles are very important because those CO2 bubbles 
are the things that create that spongy texture in our baked goods. And uh, now that we've had, we've, we are going to do some more fermentation later on in the process. But the point behind this intermediate proofer is that it, it provides or starts a fermentation process just enough to get a dough ball, which is just a little bit bigger. And the gluten is now a little bit more relaxed and it allows it to be molded. It allows it to be rolled into a long shape that will eventually um, allow our loaf of bread to be created. So of course, our intermediate proofer has a temperature setting. And what we wanna do is we wanna make sure that temperature is not too hot and not too cold. If it's above 29.4 degrees Celsius, then the dough essentially um, loses too much water, becomes too solid and can't hold the gas bubbles. If it's below 26.7 degrees Celsius, there's not enough heat for the yeast to do its stuff. And so the yeast can't create enough bubbles. So we wanna have our temperature uh, right in the middle of that range and uh, not only that we want to have our dough ball within our intermediate proof of anywhere between 5 to 15 minutes to get the right amount of gas bubbles but of course the real world is frustratingly um, uh, uncontrollable to an extent and even though we might have a temperature gauge in this machine the actual temperature within different parts of this machine might be different so what I want us to do right now is I'll come back to your questions in a minute, Carl. But I want us to look at this intermediate proofer. And if we don't get the, uh, the time and temperature right for our dough ball, we will have a loaf of bread which doesn't hold shape, which isn't spongy, and is otherwise not chewable. So a process for me, a team, will sit down and look at this machine or look at this step and say, what could go wrong? What might failure look like? So what we're going to do right now is we're going to brainstorm as a team some potential corrective actions to ensure our process doesn't fail. So we'll go back to the picture of our intermediate proofer. I want people to think about what could go wrong and what can we do to make sure those things don't happen? And once you've got an idea, feel free to share it in the chat window. <clears throat> anyone know what, anyone want to brainstorm about what could go wrong having described multiple? Okay, so Mark said that we might have multiple temperature monitoring points. Mike mentioned that the heat element fails in some way. So, the life could move too fast. Awesome. This, this is fantastic brainstorming. What happens if, um, is it possible for our dough to not be heated in a uniform way? The conveyor fails. Love it. Anything else? What can we do? And when we say conveyor fails, Mike, of course, conveyor failure can mean anything from it ceases to work entirely through to it moves too slowly or it doesn't go through the right way or um, is the dough rotated during its passage. Fantastic. So this is a sort of brainstorm. Temperature gradients within proof of the dough is too small, too big. 
Right. Okay. This is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And so we're uh, some day build up, put, collect inside the machine and change the rate of transit. This is what a process of Mia is all about. Inconsistent shape of dough. So fantastic. Um, we know that a spherical shape will um, uh, will have a certain heat profile without the dough. But if it's anything besides spherical, then the extreme points or pointy bits of that dough will get heated in a, usually a much faster way. Machine fails to notify the operator if there is a problem. And so the process for maintenance issues due to machine age, love it. And so the corrective actions that we come up with include, and some, some of us have already come up with a couple, um, multiple temperature monitoring points. Mark came up with at the very start. So where we might do some sort of uh, initial manufacturing testing or baking testing, work out what the optimal temperature distribution is, have those monitoring points in our intermediate proofer, write down what they are, and those temperatures change markedly during our uh, subsequent baking product baking uh, operations, we know I've got a problem before it becomes a problem. Um, maintenance issues. So one of the corrective actions might be is that we look at our preventive maintenance and make sure temperature sensors are cleared or tested or what have you. We might ask our um, our uh, the, the team behind the, uh, the manufacturer of our intermediate proofer to have multiple uh, or redundant sensors to make sure that if one fails, uh, the whole process isn't isn't uh, isn't ruined. If the temperature fails, determine what happened to that dough. So if you see that, uh, for I'm guessing, Mike, you were saying that if the temperature is not doing what it's supposed to according to what our sensors say, we then have a process in place where we take that dough and examine it to see what's going on. Fantastic. And so, as you can imagine, um, one of the one, one of the reasons why I use the intermediate proofer is that the problems associated with uh, poor fermentation often won't become apparent until the uh, life of bread has been fully baked. We don't want to have to wait till then. If we know how our intermediate proofer is supposed to behave. And if we have already worked out that perhaps we need to make sure the temperature gradients are right, we need to monitor conveyor speed, we need to make sure the dough ball is a consistent uh, size. So we might add a step where the dough ball, is, the dimensions are somehow checked beforehand. Now we're coming up with fantastic corrective actions. And the reality is adding temperature sensors in an intermediate proofer does involve some cost. But that's a pretty small price to pay compared to even an hour of downtime or uh, a week's worth of recalls of loaves of bread. And so that is the inherent difference between a process and a design for Mia. The process for Mia is looking at how we can change the process or what corrective actions we can implement in our process to make sure that whatever it is our design for Mia says we need to build is within specifications, i.e. not defective. And if you have been able to see that these are some really useful corrective actions for this baking process, then congratulations, you fundamentally understand what a process for me is all about. One thing I will say is that we don't want to have just throwaway statements. So for example, we don't want to have we, we don't want to have as a corrective action uh, investigate or implement preventive maintenance. That's just too high level, too broad, too easy to satisfy. 
without ensuring we're addressing the main issue. Uh, preventive maintenance could be simply something uh, be as simple as wiping down the exterior of a machine. If you're going to say we need to have preventive maintenance, specify what that preventive maintenance is supposed to achieve. If the preventive maintenance is there to make sure that the temperature sensors are working and are calibrated and are free of dust, free of dough, free of crumbs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, write that down. Don't just say do something at very high level without thinking about it. Be as specific as possible because when you're as specific as possible, it gives tremendous guidance to the people who are going to implement that corrective action and uh, more often than not will actually address the issue. If you just have a corrective action, which is do preventive maintenance, good luck with that. Of course, preventive maintenance is always important or sorry, it can be important for certain machines, but you need to give your team a hand and not just uh, fill up a spreadsheet full of throwaway statements. Okay, so Carl's asked a few questions. I believe there's three three questions Carl uh, is expecting answers for me from. Carl writes, it's un unfortunately it's sometimes possible to do everything right, but at the right, wrong time. How does one perform for Mia at the wrong time? I don't think about for Mia until something goes wrong. Any thoughts? Yes, Femirs are often done at the wrong time. And in my opinion, the root cause of those Femirs being done at the wrong time is that culturally the organization does not understand Femirs or is not motivated to um, conduct them. Organizations that that want uh, simply want to say that done a Femir and nothing else are the ones that tend to do it at the wrong time. Organizations that love Femirs and there are plenty of them out there. Plenty of organizations use essentially nothing but FAMIRs to make to provide their strategy for our reliability. They know that the FAMIRs are there to provide corrective actions. So they inherently know that they need to do FAMIRs at a point in time where those corrective actions are easy to implement, i.e. as early as possible. And you don't want to do it too early because a design FAMIR done on something that you have not got a good idea about the design for is often a waste of time. So you need to get the balance right, but nine times out of 10, FAMIRs are done too late by organizations who simply want to say that they have done a FAMIR without valuing the outputs of a FAMIR. Carl then writes, how can fault tree analysis and event tree analysis help in a FAMIA? Okay, so fault tree analysis is, uh, I've done a webinar on fault trees if people are interested and never heard of them. A fault tree is used in one of two scenarios. One, to model system reliability, where you try to work out how reliabilities of components combine to create system reliability characteristics. And the second time fault trees are used is for root cause analysis. Now, root cause analysis sounds terribly retrospective, but root cause analysis is often done uh, in a predictive way, including in FAMIAs, where you try and predict the likely ways your thing can fail. And a fault tree is very useful to do that. And many organizations don't do FAMIRs. They use fault trees in a very similar way to try and predict how their thing will fail to develop corrective actions. So fault trees and FAMIRs are often used um, in, I'll say, competing ways, but uh, it's not in some organizations are just prefer fault trees to FAMIRs. Some organizations preferred FAMIRs to fault trees. Fault trees tend to be less um, uh, less prescriptive in their steps, 
but a good fault tree analysis is often just as good as a good FEMIR. And in a FEMIR itself, you will often, when you're struggling to identify root causes of potential failure modes and failure mechanisms, a fault tree analysis, little one, can be conducted as part of the FEMIR. So for example, in our process FEMIR, we might use fault tree analysis to try and work out what could go wrong with our intermediate proofer. And so that fault tree analysis then comes up with potential root causes. And then the, those root causes then are used uh, for us to help brainstorm corrective actions. And those corrective actions then get put into our FEMIR outputs. The reality is um, everyone has a, a, tends to have a preference to uh, for certain tools uh, to be used uh, in certain scenarios. I've again, I've seen FEMIRs and fault trees used equally well and equally valuably in similar scenarios. Sometimes FEMIRs are better. Sometimes fault trees, uh, fault tree analyses are more relevant. And sometimes FEMIRs include fault tree analyses. But uh, if you want to learn more about fault tree analyses, uh, please feel free to look at the webinar we've done in the past. Now, event tree analysis is specifically used for scenarios where time matters, i.e. the sequence of events matters. Fault tree analysis tends to be rather static, i.e. Um, you uh, any combination of events will cause certain things to fail. Event tree analysis looks at the sequence of events, and that's particularly useful when you involve humans. So, for example, warning light goes off. Does the human uh, uh, observe the warning light? Yes, no. If the answer is yes, does the human do the right thing? Yes, no, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So event trees are very useful for scenarios where the sequence of events matters. However, um, I, I haven't seen event trees used a hell of a lot in familiars. That's not to say they don't have a place. If you are looking at human machine interfaces in particular, event tree analysis can be very useful. But hopefully that answers your question or gives you enough material for you to go ponder uh, the conundrum that gave rise to that question. And last but not least, Carl asks, how do I create generic familiars for a family of products? Well, the first thing I'd say, I'd say is be very careful with defining generic familiars. Um, the reason why uh, you need to be very careful is that when you have generic familiars for a family of products, it often means that people with a generic familiar for a product that's being about to be developed uh, put their brain in neutral. Why? Because the familiar has already been done. So generic familiars can, do have a place, but there is a high risk associated with them. And that is that we stop thinking about new and emerging problems because the familiar has already been done. Now, there's plenty of organizations which use generic familiars very well. Don't want to say that's not a thing but they understand their place. And in many cases, these so-called generic familiars are essentially um, uh, kernels of thought or the initiating product for a broader familiar where the team then investigates all the things that have changed for a particular product, all the things that are new, or all the things that are relevant to this product being used in a new environment. So hopefully that answers that question as well. Okay. So we are almost, almost at uh, the end of our window for today. 
If there's any more questions or comments, please feel free to share them now. I'll hang around as long as it takes to answer them. But if people need to disappear because um, I'm not sure what time it is in the Netherlands, but I dare say you might have things to do. Thank you very much for joining us today. If you have any comments, thank you, Mike, and thank you, Carl. If you have any comments, any ideas, any questions um, that you can't fit into this conversation, please feel free to put them in the comments window at ascendoreliability.com. Um, and also, if you have any ideas for future webinars and podcasts, please let us know. Um, Fred and I love talking about reliability as much, as much as the next person, but there comes a risk that we just focus on the things that are our favorite things and not the things that are the most relevant things. So please feel free to tell us what we need to talk about in the future. Um, but in summary, it seems like you guys already know what a process for mirror is because you came up with some wonderful corrective actions for our process that weren't just machine centric. Uh, thank you, Sebastian, as well. Um, thank you very much for that feedback. Much appreciated. Again, if there's anything else, um, please feel free to reach out. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> remember that in society, the upper crust is a bunch of crumbs held together by a lot of dough. That's right. That's If that's the main takeaway, I'm happy with that one as well. Now, um, so Sarah asked, do I know anything about the FAMIA MSR when it's used? And that's FAMIA MSR is often used um, in the world of functional safety. Now, functional safety is a really interesting thing. Thanks, Max. It's a really interesting thing to define. And uh, potentially it's, that is that is a the subject of a whole new podcast. Uh, so functional safety is... What's the best way of talking about functional safety? Um, or it means that the system has inbuilt functions where the functions themselves are there to um, make things happen as well and that keep your system safe. Uh, perhaps an example is um, uh, a laser cutting machine, which has its own functions that identify when an operator is drowsy or not doing what needs to happen and perhaps automatically shuts down the machine as well. Another one is good is eye tracking in uh, in vehicles, where people uh, where vehicles are able to identify when people are focusing on a mobile phone or cell phone as opposed to the road ahead, and then maybe can do something about it. So MSR stands for monitoring and system response, which is sort of a broad term for that sort of stuff. And if I'm going to be honest, I think for me is have a really useful role to play. Um, there are, is, uh, they are considered their own type of uh, FAMIA, especially in the world of vehicles and, and driving. Um, and I, I think that what tends to happen with MSRs is that the MSR piece, the monitoring and system response, becomes so much of the focus that we forget uh, that we're there to find those basic corrective actions. And so we can have corrective actions which are simple, fast, and free sort of omitted because we feel like we need to have some sort of device or component or machine or sensor, which is going to, in a, in a very proactive way, step in and save the day. Um, so I, I definitely think for me is 
with uh, monitoring the system responses as part of the whole functional safety piece, they can be extraordinarily useful. The risk is, is that we focus on having really sophisticated solutions to basic problems. Um, does that come anywhere close to answering your question, Sarah? No worries. Okay, Fred, it seems like our participants are dropping like crumbs, breadcrumbs off the baking table. Um, thank you for your feedback. Thanks, Kenneth.